All right, well, good morning, everybody. Glad you can make it out to our Sunday worship in the cafeteria. Uh, again, as uh, Pastor Sam mentioned, this is the one Sunday that we gather together in this room, and I think it's appropriate to kind of have a special gathering like this. I think today's message is kind of a special message, uh, not only because we're wrapping up our series in the family of God, uh, but also I've been waiting to give a message like, message like this for a very long time, and hopefully you'll see why. But um, if you have your Bibles, we're actually going to turn to Genesis chapter 1. So in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have your Bibles, it should appear on the screen as well. But we'll be referring back to the text several times. So if you have your Bibles or apps open, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. And then we're going to skip over to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 and 21 to 22. So first, though, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. For there with me, I'll read it out loud for us. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now go over and skip to chapter 2 to verse 18. And it says, starting verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he uh, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. This is the reading of God's word. Uh, I'm not sure if you, some of you know, but I've been gone the past two weeks because I had a baby girl who was born to our family, and so number three uh, amongst them. And uh, today's my last Sunday before I take my paternity leave, so I'm going to be gone for the next two Sundays as well. Um, and again, uh, welcoming our, our third child to our family, it kind of shifted things because my, I have two children uh, apart from the third, a uh, six-year-old and a four-year-old, six-year-old son, four-year-old daughter, and now we brought home a third-year-old, not third-year-old, a third child uh, into the family. And what's funny is when I brought our baby girl, Isabella, or we call her baby Izzy, when I brought her home, I had to have a DTR uh, with my other two kids, meaning I had to define the relationship to talk about, hey, what, what do we do now? How do we relate to this new creature that has come into the household? And so I told my daughter, Emma, who's the middle child, I said, Emma, uh, just know you're not the baby girl anymore in this family. You are the older sister now. You now have a younger sister. So you need to love this, your baby sister. You need to be her friend. And we had that conversation. With Judah, my oldest child, I told him, you're not just the older brother anymore. You're the oldest brother to two sisters now. Things have shifted, so you need to protect them. You need to take care of them. You need to get their back. And the reason why is because I thought it was important for them to know how to relate to their baby sister as family. We needed to have that conversation. And I know they're not going to get it right away. I know there's going to be times where I'm going to have to talk to Judah and talk to Emma and say, hey, remember that conversation we had a while back? You need to do that. And so it's a long process, a lot for them to understand, but that conversation was meaningful because, again, it's a reference point for them, for us to function as a family. And in a similar way, that's why we've been going through this series of Family God as a church. I know there was a lot that was thrown out. I've heard people talk about how, so what do I do with this? How, what are we supposed to expect from this series? 
And my hope is that this is the foundation for our church so that when we ever talk about, hey, church, we ain't a club, we're family, this is kind of like the reference point for us, the reference point for our community. And we went through a lot. In part one, we talked about how the church needs to relate to each other as a family. In part two, we talked about how the church needs to act like a family. In part three, we talked about the church needs to care for each other like a family. In part four, we said, older men, older women, invest in younger men and younger women because that's how the church family grows. In part five, we said, hey, we have a lot of kids. We have to love our children here. In part six, we said, hey, we have to forgive one another as a family. And then lastly, last week with our guest speaker, Brett McCracken, we talked about healthy practices of a family. Well, today we're going to end our series. It's the last part of this long series that we are going through, and we're going to talk about one final last relationship within the family that I just think is really important to talk about that's relevant to all of us, and it's how we relate to each other as men and women, men and women in the church. Now, this is complicated because I am dealing with a topic that you're not supposed to touch today, which is a topic of gender, and there's a lot that could be said about gender because it's so loaded, uh, but I'm not going to be talking about gender roles or talking about LGBTQ mo uh, plus movement stuff. I'm mainly going to talk about gender in the context of the church. That's the main focus I'm going to have here, which runs into a problem. Because I don't know about you, but if you've ever heard gender discussed in a church context, it is always discussed in one of two ways. One of two ways. The first way is this. It's always discussed in the context of marriage, Right? The most sermons I've heard that said, you know how a man and a woman relate to each other? Well, when you're a husband, this is how you treat the wife. And when you're a wife, this is how you relate to the husband. And here's the problem. I don't think God created the two genders only for marriage. Because most, a lot of our lives, we interact with people of the opposite gender that's not our spouse. A lot of you, you're single. You might be single for a long time. A lot of us here, for us, we have siblings, we have coworkers, we have people in the church. How do I relate to the opposite gender who's not my spouse? Is it only in marriage that God designed gender? And I don't think so. And so here's another context, though. If we don't talk about or gender in the context of marriage, the other way the church obviously normally talks about it is gender roles. Gender roles. Who makes decisions? Who gets to do what? What's allowed and what's not allowed for men and women? And as important as that topic is, if that's the only way you've heard gender discussed, you're still left confused. How do you relate to the other gender? And so that's the question we're going to talk about today. How are men and women supposed to relate to one another in the church? What is my relationship supposed to be with the opposite gender in the family of God. Now, oftentimes, when we answer this question, we've been formed far more by the culture, by social media, by podcasts, by friends, way more than what God has to say about this. But as a Christian, if you want to understand how gender works, if you want to have a framework for gender of how we relate to one another, as Christians, we need to go even further back further back to how did Christians believe God designed men and women. That's why we look back at Genesis chapter 1 and 2 today. In the story of creation, we see in the Bible that God, he created everything. And this is a very familiar story to a lot of us, right? We've heard this many times. 
But I want to look at it a little bit differently. Kind of like, um, you know, Squid Games? A lot of you might watch Squid Games. I, pl- I watched it. I plan to watch it again. Even though I know the story, but now I know the twist. And I want to watch the movie again, focusing on the twist, so that I have a different experience. Genesis 1 to 2, you know the story. Let's look at it with a different lens. Let's look at it particularly about the man and the woman and see how God made them and learn how God caused them to relate to one another in a family God. And when we look at this, my goal is that we could walk away understanding there's three ways men and women are supposed to relate to each other here in the church. Number one, in the family God, men and women are to value one another. We're called to value each other. Number two, men and women, the family God, we are called to share life together. Share life. And number three, the family God, men and women are called to serve alongside each other. So we're to value one another, share life together, serve alongside each other. Let's look at the first one. In the family of God, men and women, we are to value one another. So Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the lands and the seas. He created the animals and the plants. And now we see he creates humanity, but he creates them in a very unique way. Chapter 1, verse 26 to 27, look what it says again. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, three things to note about this, these short verses. First, notice that when Genesis talks about the creation of humanity, God created them in the image of God. Next month, I am going to be taking my son Judah to his first Lakers game. It's going to be exciting. I've been dreaming of this moment for a very long time, and I'm excited to not just show him the game inside Staples Center. I'm excited to explore outside Staples Center because outside Staples Center are going to be all these statues of my favorite players, Magic Johnson, Shaquille O'Neal, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and my son has no idea who these guys are. And so he thinks Anthony Davis and LeBron James are the best, and I'm like, "Mm mm-mm. There's a bad boy named Shaquille O'Neal. You've never seen him play. A lot of people that I know haven't seen him play, but he's the most dominant. Look at that statue, and you see a statue of Shaq dunking in front of Staples Center, and it's meant to depict this is what Shaq was like. Huge, powerful, dominant. I look forward to educating my son about Shaq and showing him this is who Shaq is, even though that's not really Shaq. It's an image of who Shaq is. In a similar way, when God created us, humanity, Genesis, it's saying that God made us in the imago Dei, in his image. We are meant to show all creation. You want to know what God is like? Look at people. This is what God is like, more than the stars, more than the mountains, people. But here's a second observation. Notice when God creates humanity in his image, he did not create one person, he created two. He created two. He made them man and woman. God did not have to do this. He did not have to do this. God could have made an androgynous creature where you're partially male, partially female, and those exist in the world, and yet he chose to make two. In other words, there is something about a man that reflects God in a way that a woman does not reflect, and there's something about a woman that reflects God in a way that man does not reflect. Man alone does not reflect the Imago Dei fully. Woman alone does not reflect the Imago Dei fully. Together, they reflect the image of God. And then third observation about these verses. Notice the image of God is reflected not in the man and woman's sexuality, but it is reflected in their gender. It's reflected in their gender. What do I mean by that? Notice that Genesis doesn't say God created man and woman. It says he made them male and female. There is a Hebrew word for man and woman, 
and there's a Hebrew word for male and female. And this tells us something. What reflects the image of God that's different between man and woman, it is not our anatomy. It is not biological. It is something in us that's sociological that's reflecting the image of God. In culture, today especially, we believe sex is biological, but it's argued that gender is sociological. But Genesis is saying both the sex and the gender, it is inherent to the human design. In other words, the image of God is not just reflected in our biology, but it is reflected in your masculinity, in your femininity. Those are important aspects that reflect somebody. It tells a story. Therefore, through our distinct genders, God wants us to know who he is, and each gender reflects it in a distinct way. And this tells us a couple of things. This explains why men and women, we tend to be very different from one another, not just biologically, but even sociologically. Daniel Goleman, he's not a Christian, but he wrote this book called Emotional Intelligence, pretty much EQ, the importance of EQ. And he talks about, you know, there's a big difference between men and women, and it's not sociological because you see it even when they're little kids. And he did a bunch of experiments, and again, he's very, very general, so of course there's always outliers. But he said, generally speaking, in the experiments he's done, when girls play together and when boys play together, you see a big difference. Ages, ages two to four, it's already there. So for example, when girls play together, generally speaking, they enjoy, at ages two to four, smaller groups. And Gordon Goldman says, because it's all, the key, name of the game is cooperation. It's all about cooperation. Versus young boys, they like playing together in larger groups in his experiments. You know why? Because the name of the game is competition. It's all about competing with each other with the boys. In the girl games, when they're playing together and somebody gets injured, what the girls did is they would stop the game and be like, are you okay? And they would minister to her. And the boys, when they're playing together, somebody gets injured, they grab the boy, remove him from the game, and they keep playing. And Goldman says, there's nothing sociological about this. It's consistent across the board at a young age. There's something unique about these genders that you see this early. There's a difference between men and women, and this also explains why we don't look down on the differences, but we're to value them. We're to value these differences. They each uniquely reflect the image of God, which actually goes against chauvinistic theories or feminist theories that says one gender is inferior or is inferior, the other one's superior. There's nothing inferior or superior about either or, according to the Christian worldview. They're distinct, they are different, but equally valuable. Mary Cassian, she's an author, she says it like this, quote, God created male and female as complementary expressions of the image of God. Male and female are counterparts in reflecting his glory. Having two sexes expands the view. Though both sexes bear God's image fully on their own, each does so in a unique and distinct way. Male and female relationship reflects truths about Jesus that aren't reflected by male alone, or female alone. Now, for a lot of us, if you grew up in the church, this might sound familiar. Genders are different, even though it's very controversial out in the world. But if you grew up in the church, this is something that's there, and we just kind of take for granted. Just know this is a radical idea, a radical idea to value the genders and their distinctions, both in the ancient world and the modern world. In the ancient world, the distinctions were not seen as, oh, this is a beautiful dance, a beautiful compliment. Not at all. They were different. People recognized they're different, and what would happen? The oppression of women took place. Women were not seen as anything valuable, and because women were devalued, it led to their oppression. 
There's an essay that I saw that I read. It's out there on the internet, and you could read it. The title of the essay caught my eye. It's called Women as Chaos Agents in Creation Myths. What a crazy title. And the whole point of that essay is, you know every ancient creation story that you read, when it talks about how a woman was created, she always was depicted as a person who brought chaos into the world. That's how every creation story was created, or depicted as a woman. She brought a curse to the world, and that's how people understood women in the ancient world. Aristotle, he's quoted in his, in his article saying that, you know what women basically are, because they're different than men? He says they are deformed men. That's basically what women are. Aristotle says that women, because they are deformed, they are incapable of reasoning. So husbands don't even reason with their wives. They can't understand you. And he says that women, therefore, they are created to be subservient to men. In ancient Rome, the time that Jesus lived, women were not allowed to own property. So therefore, if your spouse passed away, you are destitute. Women were not allowed to have an education. Women were not allowed to separate from their spouses. And in Rome, the most likely to be abandoned and aborted as a child, it was always girls. Even in modern times, in America, it wasn't until the 20th century that women were allowed to vote and that women gained equal employment opportunities. If you look throughout history, the oppression of women is just there, only because they're a woman, because of the distinctions. Now, thank goodness, today it's a little bit better. Still got ways to go for the sisters, but it's a little bit better today where we've made a lot of progress, where people know that there's actually value and we hear female voices being all the more heard in the culture. But you know what's happening now is as sisters are progressing, what's happening? The men are regressing. The men are regressing. There's an article in New York Times that caught my eye. It was called The Boys Are Not All Right. It was written by this guy named Michael Ian Black. And he said, you know, I, he, he was pretty much talking about, you know, um, School shootings are happening all the time, and they seem to be happening more and more, but there's one common thing every school shooting has. The, the person who's shooting is always a boy. It's always a boy who's doing the shooting. What's going on? And so his whole argument is the boys are not all right. And he goes beyond that, not talking about the shooting, but he's saying, you know, of course women have their own issues that they have to go through, and there's still oppression that takes place, but at least there's progress. At least there's a movement that's happening that's propelling sisters to have something to go towards. But boys and men, they're getting lost. There's no movement that's capturing their intention. In fact, it's all the opposite. To be a boy, to be a man, is viewed as toxic masculinity, is viewed as something that, you know, you're just supporting the patriarchy. And so while there's many things that men rightly are criticized for, there is a lot of stuff that's been talked about about dudes. I'm like, dude, that was absolutely right. They do suck in many ways. But now we have a generation of just confused boys. Ask a person to church after a service today, what does it mean to be a man? We have no clue. We don't know. And this is how the culture is. Historically and modernly, we oppress or we condemn the gender distinctions. But it's supposed to be different in the family of God. While the world operates where the genders are in competition and in conflict to one another, God's church is meant to be the churches, actually, the people of God, we value the, the, the genders. We work together. Because in the church of God, we recognize each gender reflects a unique aspect of who God is. We value men. We value women. And you see it in the church throughout history. This is why if you went to the church in the first century, you know who the majority of the congregation would be? Women. Even though today the church is seen as like they oppress women and so forth, in the first century, not at all. 
It was all sisters. And the reason why is because the Christian church was the one unique religion that did not view women as agents of chaos. They saw women as the image of God. They were to be valued, educated, platformed, ministered to. In fact, one historian named Rodney Stark, he said, you know, how, you know how Christianity became the most popular religion in the Roman world? If, humanly speaking, he said that um, it's because most of the women were Christians. And so all the men, if they wanted to get married to somebody, they had to marry a Christian girl because there were no non-Christian girls. And so literally, they would marry these, uh, the pagan men would marry these Christian women, they would get converted, and their children became Christians, and hence, Rome became Christianized. through all the people who became Christians. Because the church, it was seen as a place of refuge for women. It was seen as a place that elevated women. It was seen as a place that valued women. Even today, where men are being depicted as toxic masculinity and how do you become a man, men are languishing more than ever, except in the church. In the Atlantic article in 2016, it talks about how men, especially minorities, more than ever in history, they are facing challenges of poverty, of unemployment, of depression, except the men who are participants in the church. And then when it was asked, why is this taking place? It's because for some reason, the church is the one place where men find a sense of dignity, a sense of purpose to help them to navigate through life. And so while the culture condemns the genders, the family of God is meant to value the genders. The church has always valued the genders. And the question is, how about you? What about you? Men, do you dismiss women more than honor them in your life? Do you look down on feminine things going, that's such a womanly thing, not for me? Or women, are you far more critical of the men of your life than affirming? Do you blame the world's problems on men? Men are the problems. Realize when you have an attitude like that, where you are far more critical than encouraging of the other gender, you've adopted the culture's view of gender, where there's always conflict, there's always condemnation. But when we honor the other gender, encourage, value what the other person brings, what we're doing is we are recognizing the imago Dei in each person. The church of God is meant to not dismiss, not to condemn, but to value both men and women. Not only that, but secondly, in the family God, men and women, we are to also share life. We're meant to share life together, and I'm gonna get controversial here, so please bear with me. Genesis, um, notice after God created man and woman in his image, look what he tells them to do. He says, hey, I didn't just create you uh, to have sex and procreate, but it's literally to go rule, go relate, and go create. Chapter one, verse 28, look what it says. Plural, and God blessed, not the man, God blessed them, and God said to, not the man, he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. He doesn't just say, go have kids together, and then when it comes to the dominion part, hey, sister, you stay at home, brother, now it's your part, you roll up your sleeves and you go. Mm -mm. Plural, both of you together, have dominion, subdue the earth together. You are meant to share life together. Do things together. Work side by side together. Now, if you grew up in the church, you know this doesn't happen. This beautiful picture of you, men and women, work together, share life together harmoniously. In Genesis 3, sin enters the world, where now the genders are not cooperating side by side. They are conflicting. And then what happens is the culture oppresses women, and men get jacked in that way. And also religious communities, they don't, they don't oppress women, but they try to separate them. They're still separated. For example, in Judaism back in Jesus' day, you know, men were not allowed to socialize with women. 
If you saw a woman on the street, even though you're a Jewish religious man who believes women are made in the image of God, if I saw a woman on the street as a Jewish man, I am not to greet her sexually tempting. So you walk away. You are not to teach a woman. Let the man teach her how to read the Bible, not her herself to read it for herself. When they worship together, if this was a Jewish temple back in Jesus' day, the men would be up in the front and all the women would be back in the outer courts. We have to be separated. We still honor you, but we are separate. That's how it was. And then all of a sudden, in the first century, in the midst of this context, this Jewish rabbi comes into the world. And a lot of his disciples, they are men, but when he sees women, he goes, hey, you come too. There's men here, but sisters, come here. Sit right here. You see, the Gospels tell us that when Jesus came as a rabbi, he did something that was unheard of back in the day. He would minister to women along with the men. He would heal the women along with the men. He would converse and dignify the women along with the men. He would teach and educate the women along with the men. He would even enter into their homes, Mary and Martha. He would come into their houses and share a meal with them. You must realize when you read those passages, scandalous, scandalous. Never does a male religious teacher do something like that with a woman. Why is Jesus doing this? And the reason why Jesus was always doing this is because Jesus, he's not just creating any type of community, he is creating a new community where men and women, they are not in conflict like in the world, they are not separated like in religion, but in this community, they are sharing life together. That's why in the early church, even though they were all Jewish, most of them, they did not have this separation of courts between men and women. But in the book of Acts, what you see is men in worship, worshiping together. They are praying for each other. They are eating in each other's homes. In the epistles, when Paul tells us, church, love each other, he doesn't say brothers love each other, sisters love each other. He doesn't go men pray for each other, women pray for each other. No gender qualification. Pray for each other, whoever you are. doesn't matter the gender. Pray for each other. Love each other. Forgive each other. Genders share life. In fact, it got so crazy where men and women were sharing life together that the pagans who were not Christians, they heard that men and women were worshiping together and their historical documents where they're making up these rumors saying, you know what Christians are doing? They're having sexual orgies. There's these giant sex orgies taking place on the gatherings because why else would men and women be together? It doesn't work that way. The reason why the men and women in the early church shared life like this is because they related to each other in God's family, no longer as men and women, but in Christ they are now brothers and sisters. They're brothers and sisters. First Timothy chapter 5, he tells us, Paul, how the church should relate to each other. He says in chapter verse 1, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as a brother, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. He uses family language, saying, the church, you're not just a community. You're not just friends. If you're just friends, the men and women distinctions, then you just have to kind of be separate and so forth. But in a family, it's different. Through Christ, you have God as your father, you have men as your brothers, and you have women as your sisters. I grew up with brothers and sisters. I'm not sure if you have as well. But I, I had a brother, an older brother, older sister, and I related to them in different ways. My brother, I'd always play with him. My sister, I'd always talk with her. My brother, we'd always fight each other physically. My sister and I, we would fight each other verbally. Even though it was different and the way we talked to each other was different, 
My affections, though, were just as deep. You mess with my brother, I kill you. You mess with my sister, I kill you. That's literally how I felt. I had a deep affection for both of them. That's what it means to be a sibling. That's what I told Judah. Love your sister, I tell Emma, love your brother. That's a separate thing. You relate differently, but the love is still as deep. The love is still as strong. And this is the way men and women are supposed to relate to one another in God's family. We're brothers. We're sisters. Now, when you look at the church today, do you see men and women acting like brothers and sisters? Is this what we see? I don't know about you, but I don't see it. I don't see it that often. Even though we're supposed to be united, the church, we're, we're acting more religious, but we're still separated. Like we have, you know, come to the church, and there's a men's ministry where all the men meet together, and there's a women's ministry where all the women meet together. There's a man's small group where all the men talk about their problems. There's a woman's small group where all the women talk about their problems. Worship's done. We worship together, but then when we eat lunch, there's a guy table, and there's a girl table, and there's just kind of this unspoken rule that what are you doing here if you come to the guy table or to the girl table? If you're single and you're a guy, you talk to a girl, and she's single. When you go back to your friends, they're like, hey, what's going on there? What you two talking about, huh? Or if you're a married guy, and you see him talking to a married woman who's not his wife, it's like, hey, what are you doing, man? Be careful. Isn't that how we kind of act with each other? Amy Bird, she wrote this book called Why Can't We Be Friends? Which pretty much just talks about this whole idea of genders being friends. And she says, you know why we act this way in the church? why this kind of has been the culture of the modern church today, is because without knowing it, we are following what she calls the Billy Crystal rule. She calls it the Billy Crystal rule. Now, what does that mean? Billy Crystal, he's an actor, and it comes from this movie called When Harry Met Sally. If you've never seen the movie, you're not alone. I haven't seen it either. But I heard about it all the time. It was made in the 1980s. The basic premise is there's a guy and a girl, Billy Crystal, Meg Ryan, and they tackle this question. Can men and women be friends? And the Billy Crystal rule says, no, and here's the rule. Here's what Billy Crystal says. Men and women, they cannot be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. There's always that sexual tension. Well, wait, is this going to lead to sex? Is this going to lead to romance? It's too hard to get over that hump for a guy and girl to be friends. There's a Christian version of this. A Christian version. It's called purity culture. Purity culture says, hey, Stay away from temptation. Stay away, men, from women. Don't talk to them too long because you might get tempted. Women, stay away from men because you don't know what their intentions are. Guard your heart. Guard your heart that's there. The Billy Graham rule, which Mike Pence made famous, where Billy Graham, the evangelist, says, I will never speak to a woman one-on-one because I have to make sure I guard my heart. Now, don't get me wrong. The intention is great. We should be pure. The intention, I admire it all the more. I think it's a great intention. And even the observation that Billy Crystal makes about the sex part being in the way, I think there's parts, parts of it as very true. But if that is your paradigm as a Christian man or Christian woman, you run into problems. And here are a couple of problems that you run into. One problem is this. You have reduced the other gender to just their sexuality. You have reduced it to that. When I hear pastors say, I, can, I will never minister to a woman because I don't want to be tempted, you're basically saying women are temptresses. That's all they are. They're sexual beings who are trying to tempt you. Don't flatter yourself, man. Like, that's not happening all the time. And yet, that's what kind of the, 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 the ethos is. Or when I hear a guy or a girl say, I can't be friends because the sex part gets in the way, there might be sexual romance, that's actually a lot more Freudian than biblical. 
That's a lot more, because Freud, he said that we're basically sexual beings and it's all repressed sexuality, so you have to be careful about that. And that's basically all we're doing if we try to avoid each other in this way. But as Christians, we believe that sexuality, gender is never less than sexuality, but so much more. It's so much more. We relate to another far beyond our sexuality. We're men and women made in the image of God. Here's another consequence. When we treat the opposite gender this way, you know what happens is we create this strong separation from each other where guys stay here, girls stay here. And when you're separate from each other, you start to condemn one another. You start to have these caricatures of the other gender, and that just happens all the time. When you see the other gender as just a threat to your purity, or just as, oh, they're, they're the toxic masculinity, and that's the only perspective you have, and you're not interacting with them at all, you're just reading about them or observing them from afar, your view of them is going to get twisted. Your view of the opposite sex would get twisted. No wonder a lot, a lot of guys, the only way they can view women is to sexualize them. Because guys, oftentimes the only interaction we have with women is through pornography, is through dating apps, or is through a potential mate. You've never talked to a girl. That's just a normal person. There's always something sexual there, so you can't remove the sexual label because you have no experience beyond that. That's why no wonder a lot of women, they hate men. A lot of women, they hate men because your only interaction is your two douchey boyfriends in high school and maybe a husband that's not treating you that well. So it's not that they're bad, all men are bad. Because that's your only real interaction with them. It creates this condemnation because we don't have much data. We just think they're bad because the two, three people we see are bad. And here's the third consequence. When you treat the opposite sex this way, you actually lose out on a unique way to grow that only the opposite sex can help you grow in. I guarantee if, all the, if this whole room was filled with men, this sermon would be a lot different. The way I would talk, the way we would talk to each other, it would be so different. But insert 10 women in this room amongst those group of guys, everything changes. Why? Why does it change? Vice versa. Group of women's retreat, that was happening. Sisters are going to talk one way. Insert five praise team leaders who's with you the whole time who are all dudes. Something changes. Why? I love what author John Tyson, he says. He says, quote, the best part of gender is it releases the best part and it restrains the worst part in the other gender. The other gender will unleash the best and restrain the worst in the genders. You know, that's why for, if you had a guy group and we're just guys together, you're going to hear a nonstop farting, nonstop crude joking, nonstop smelliness. Because we're just like, just being a guy. Have sisters come in the room, the farting stops. The crude joking stops. And that's good. It's not good just to be crude like that. It's comfortable. It's an outlet. But that's, that's actually something that's the worst of men that's being restrained. And strangely, the best of men tends to be unleashed when you have them together. Some of you guys, and I'm talking to the guys, you're such dudes dudes. I can tell you're dudes. You're not just a dude. You're a dudes dude. And you're proud of it. Like you're a man's man. But when I see guys who are dudes dudes, I'm like, you know, you just don't have sisters who are friends in your life. You don't have any femininity that's surrounding you at all. And you think that's good. And that's not really true. Because you're not being influenced by the full image of God. You need more sisters in your life. You need them shaping you in your life. So when we hear about the living out our genders, we're not supposed to just think about romance and marriage. Although, 
That helps. When you're married to somebody, you change because why do you change? You have somebody to speak into your life, the opposite gender. But as God's people, it's not just in marriage. It's in the context of the church as brothers and sisters share life together. Now, the application of this, I'm not saying, therefore, go hang out one-on-one with a brother or, to, or a sister. Uh, let every person come and say, hey, I'm your brother. Let's have uh, lunch together. No, 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 no. There's creepers that are still out there. Be careful. So use wisdom. But in the family God, things have to be a little bit different. Men, some of you, you really need, again, more sisters speaking into your life. Because you learn things you just can't learn from other men through them. I know this personally because uh, I grew up in the context where it's very traditional. Men stay with men, women stay with women, guy group, girl group, and all I heard about was from men. And I remember um, because of that, my view of how people are got twisted. And it wasn't until I started meeting with sisters more. I had a book study. Some of you were there where we just, I met with 12 sisters. And we just talked about like life together for like weeks. And I was like, oh my gosh, they like opened my eyes. For example, I remember when I would talk to husbands all the time before, uh, you know what husbands, the common complaint is of marriage and from husbands is this, my wife, she never says sorry to me. I always say sorry. My wife never says sorry. And when I heard enough of that, I had like the sexist thought, sexist thought in my brain, like women don't apologize. I shouldn't expect my wife to apologize, my daughters to apologize, because women are incapable of apologizing. Because I talked to all these dudes. Fast forward, I'm with a group of women talking about the same thing. And like, you know what the problem with men are? They apologize so quickly, and they don't even mean it. I'm just like, fascinating. They tell me the opposite, that you don't apologize. And like, you know why I don't apologize? Because I mean my apology. My apology means something. I want it to have meaning behind it. I'm like, oh, women apologize meaningfully. And, you know, who's right, who's wrong? I don't know, but there's tension now. There's deepness now. There's not caricature now. Why? I'm interacting with both genders. Thank God I went through something like that. Thank God I love the fact community groups, we are sharing life with not just brothers but sisters. Don't get me wrong, there is a place with brothers, brothers, sisters, sisters that are really helpful. But man, I hear sisters sharing their burdens every single week. I'm like, I never knew women struggle with that. I never knew that's how you interpreted that sermon. I never knew that's how you view things in life. And hearing that on a weekly, regular basis, shifting my life. Serving with sisters has been extremely helpful. Let's do this for our members meeting. And someone's like, ah, the women won't like that. I'm like, you're right. They won't like that. I'm reading authors all the time about the Bible who are women. And they make me see things I've never seen because I realize I've only read male authors about the Bible. It's shaping me. For some of us men, we need more sister voices shaping us. You're a dude's dude because you don't have any sisters in your life. You're missing the Imago Dei fully for you. And women, contrastly, some of you, you need more brothers shaping your life. As happy as I am that uh, Emma, she has a sister and that Izzy has a sister, I'm really happy they have Judah as a brother. I'm really happy. Because I know now that if Emma and Izzy, if they get picked on, I want them to feel like they're protected. Big brother got them. He's going to protect them. If they're discouraged, I want them to know that, hey, big brother, they're encouraging them. Big brother has got them. And if a guy ever hurts their heart, if a guy ever jacks my daughters, I really hope that even though it's painful, that Emma and Izzy, they would still value men because they have a great brother. There's a great man that's still in their life. Hopefully me too. But also their brother. 
In a similar way, I hope our sisters, you wouldn't just have sisters to lean on, nor just your husband to lean on, but you have brothers in your life. You have brothers who will be there for you, who encourage you, who protect you if you need to be protected, who will value if you need to be valued, who would help you to see that not all men are like the people that you see out there. Imagine if a church was like that. Only possible if we share life. It's only possible if we share life. But not only that, lastly, in the family God, we don't just value each other, we don't just share life together, but we're meant to serve alongside one another. In Genesis 2, it kind of has a different vantage point of creation where God, he creates man, and man's alone. He creates animals, he's still alone. And all of a sudden you see God, he creates a woman. In Genesis 2, look how it says it's, he's, she's created. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord, Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I heard this text preached before, it was always to show that men are leaders and that women are subordinate. Because women are helpers, and they were made second. Second is below first. And so this is the proof text, or one of the proof texts that's there. Now, there's other stuff to talk about that topic, but we're not focusing on that. I don't think this text is communicating that. And here's why. When God gives the description of helper to the woman, it is in the context of subduing the garden. In other words, it's in the context of being on mission. And he calls her, hey, you're on mission? The animals can't help you? Hmm, here's a woman who's going to come to help. Now, when we think the word helper, we think, oh, they'll help you do things because you're too busy and the scraps you kind of, she could do like the paperwork and so forth. Not how the Hebrew word is used. The Hebrew word for helper is azer, and azer is way different than helping with the logistical stuff. What do I mean by that? My son Judah, he needs help with his homework all the time, and he asked me for help. Now, I am not his helper. He can't do it without me. It's not busy work. Without me, he's dead. Without me, he gets an F. I am his azer. I am his helper. You cannot accomplish the mission of your math problem without me. That's how the word helper is being used here. And we notice because the word azer, the main word it's used to describe in the Old Testament is God. God is the azer of Israel. When Israel is in trouble, come to your helper, your azer, your God, not to help you with the busy work, but you can't do this without me. Fast forward to garden. Adam's alone. He's called to the mission. What does he do? He can't do it. Here comes the azer. And that's why the azer comes second. God, Adam has to see, I can't do this alone. So it's not a subordination text. What's going on here? She comes in a sense to help him do something he cannot. It's like the movie Avengers Affinity War. I know we talk, we quote a lot of Marvel, but this is one of my favorite scenes where all the heroes, they're fighting the bad guys, and they're all in trouble. Go, oh, what are we going to do? And all of a sudden, you hear the music, da na da na And who comes? Thor, with all his thunder, and he just smashes everybody. He came second. Thor came second. But he came because he finished something and helped them what they can't do by themselves. The woman comes second. There's music playing in the background, bones in my bones, flesh of my flesh. Why? To help the man do something he can't do alone. Together they are to do this mission. Together, men and women, together. And we see it throughout Scripture. God constantly uses men and women together to accomplish salvation history. Old Testament, 
Book of Judges, Deborah helps Barak. Together, man and woman. Rahab helps the spies. Together, men and women. Abigail helps David. Together, men and women. Ruth and Esther, they help everybody as women. Jesus, his genealogies, not just men like most genealogies. Matthew highlights the women. Jesus travels with women. Jesus sends women as the first evangelists. Jesus sends women as the first witnesses of the resurrection. And in the New Testament, Priscilla helps Aquila. Phoebe helps Paul. Romans chapter 16, Paul says, let me list all the servants who have helped me in my ministry, all these co-laborers. You know who the most popular list is, the most popular types of people? Women. The women surpass the men of who Paul lists. Men and women, in other words, they have served together throughout salvation history. They have served together throughout Jesus' ministry. They have served together in the early church ministry. What about now? What about now? If you grew up in a conservative Asian church, this is the default thinking. Men are to rise up and women stay home and submit. Learn submission, learn to stay home, but men, you need to step up and do the work of ministry. And if you really go, well, maybe women should do ministry, let's create a women's ministry so they can minister together, or a mom's ministry and they can minister together, or a women's retreat so you can learn about what it means to be a woman together. And again, I'm down for all that stuff. That stuff is needed. You need things like that. But if that is the only arena that a church has where a woman's voice is being heard, you know what happens? Women are shaping women, and that's it. They're not shaping any other part of the church. But we need the entire church shaped by men and women together. Because together we reflect the Imago Dei, and together, we accomplish the mission of God. And this is really relevant to our church. You know why? I, I did a statistic study on our church. And you know, our church is neither male populated nor female populated. It's down the middle. I counted, we counted every member. Who's a man? Who's a woman? Amongst the members, 52% of the people are men. 48% of the people are women. Literally 4% difference. That's it. Even more, married men equate 23% of the church, married women 27%, single men 26%, single women 24%. It's all literally separated by 2 to 4%. But how many sisters in the church are leading our church? How many are leading ministries? How many are platformed? How many are speaking out loudly and shaping the church? Not many. And I don't blame the sisters at all. I don't blame the sisters. Churches have done a poor job listening, integrating, and empowering sisters in God's church. Now, personally, just know, some of you might think I'm going like crazy here, but I want to be faithful to God's word, okay? My convictions with God's word has not changed, and I strongly believe that the gender distinctions are there. I truly believe it. But I really want to be part of a church that dignifies both genders, where both men and women, you just see them together. I really want to be part of a church where sisters, they can really feel I'm being integrated in the life and foundation of this church. I want to be part of a church where sisters, they're not just seen leading women's ministry, although that's great, but they're leading all kinds of ministries. I want to be part of a church where sisters can feel confident that if they have a spiritual gift, it's going to be recognized. 
I want to be part of a church where sisters who have teaching abilities and discipling abilities, it's actually being practiced in the church. I want to be part of a church where sisters, they, are, they can see other sisters leading and setting an example for them. I want to be a church where if you're a sister and you're interested in church ministry, you find a home here. This is a place for you where you can be equipped. I want to be at a church where when people come to our church, they go, wow, you're a complementarian? It's like, yep, doesn't seem like it, but we are. I want to be part of a church where our daughters, when they come in here 10 to 20 years from now, they're like, huh, I could tell that this church was built by brothers and sisters. I can tell. And the reason why I want to be a part of a church like this is not to be woke. It's not for the sake of diversity. But again, I think this is what a church is meant to be. Men and women together reflecting the full image of God, accomplishing the mission of God. Katie Rivera, she says in, in her book that I just love, she says, quote, I do not believe men and women, they must necessarily do all the same things, but I propose we are called to be doing more things together with input from one another. Our collective identity as image bearers does not mean we are the same. Instead, because of our differences, we need one another. Our partnership and collaboration with one another more completely and robustly reflects the image of God. And so last application, how are we going to do this? What does it look like for our church? Uh, sisters, let me talk to you first. Just know we need you. We need you in this church. Not just in the sidelines, not just in the back, not just somebody who's watching over other sisters, although we need that too. But we need your spiritual gifts for all the church. We need your voice for the entire church. We need you to have ownership for everything. It's not just other sisters is who need you, but everyone needs you. And I know it's not easy. I know it's not easy. I'm an Asian man. I'm part of uh, our church. We're part of the Harbor Network. It's a white predominant group. As an Asian man, I can't be like, oh, excuse me, I'm going to just put myself up there. No, no, no. They have to invite me because I'm like the minority in that group. I know for sisters in the church, it's hard to put yourself up there because you have your whole life in the Asian American context been sitting in the back and you're not invited. And it's not automatically open the door going, hey, come serve. You just come up. It's not. And I know it takes time. But just know at our church, we, don't want, we want it to happen where it really feels like co-laborers, co-heirs in this church in different ways. And I hope, sisters, you can see you're needed here. Brothers, same thing. Even though we're asking sisters to step up, we need you too. Let's not be like youth groups where so many youth groups, you have sisters rise up and all the men, they just kind of sit back and they don't do anything anymore. It's like, no, the way we empower one another is men are stepping up, women are stepping up. And imagine if a church where both the men and women are rising together using their spiritual gifts together. What would happen? The image of God would be seen. The mission of God would take place. And so as we close this Family God series, again, we're just laying a foundation. We're not going to see these changes automatically, but hopefully progressively. And today what I want to do, though, is I want to encourage us to live out the family God as brothers and sisters. Let's serve alongside each other. Let's share life together. And let's value one another Let's root for each other, encouraging each other. Let's begin that today. 